Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, Child and Teen Development Specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. In her 2016 TED Talk, Julie Lithcott-Hames started off by saying, there's a certain style of parenting these days that is kind of messing up kids, impeding their chances to develop into themselves. There's a certain style of parenting these days that's getting in the way. I guess what I'm saying is we spend a lot of time being very concerned about parents who aren't involved enough in the lives of their kids and their education or their upbringing, and rightly so. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of harm going on there as well, where parenting a kid can't be successful unless the parent is protecting and preventing at every turn and hovering over every happening and micromanaging every moment and steering their kid towards some small subset of colleges and careers. Our kids end up leading a kind of checklisted childhood. She warns that once they end up at the end of high school, they're breathless, of course. They've had spent so much time having been obsessed with grades and activities, becoming what they are supposed to be rather than exploring who they may want to become, what interests them, and knowing with their own brains and experimenting with their own grit and their own skills to develop into self-sufficient, resilient adults. So it begs the question, what can we do to break free from overparenting, that overparenting trap that says we must be on our children every minute, prodding and directing, being our child's concierge, as Julie labels. And instead, we prepare our children to become successful adults who can stand on their own two feet. We are so privileged to have Julie Lithcott-Hames on the show today. Julie Lithcott-Hames, Roots for Humans. Humans need agency in order to make their way forward. Julie is deeply interested in what impedes us. She is the New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult, an anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, which gave rise to one of the top TED Talks of 2016 and now has over 3 million views. Her second book is the critically acclaimed prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience with racism and her journey towards self-acceptance. A third book on how to be an adult for young adults is forthcoming. She is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean, and she holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. She lives in San Francisco Bay Area with her partner of 30 years, their teenagers, and her mother. I have been so looking forward to this interview, so welcome, Julie, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. 
Thank you, Dr. Robin. It's so great to be on your show. And it made me smile when you said she lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner and their teenagers. And I thought, yes, my other teenager just came home from college and it's so great to see him. I bet you it is. I saw that I saw that initial picture on Facebook of you yes. picking up your child and how happy you were. I can yes. see it in your face. Oh my gosh. I joke with my husband. They never told me that they, no one ever told me they'd grow up and leave me. Mm. I mean, I'm, obviously I know that that's, what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to want that for them, that they, they, they use these wings that we've given them, but I'm the first to say, boy, is it hard. Boy, mm-hmm. is it hard to let them go. We adore these young people. We've had the privilege of getting to be alongside and doing our best to raise them well. And, you know, it's just, uh, I'm overjoyed when, when I see him and my little one is, is a senior in high school and we're already looking ahead to next fall. And, you know, there are things to look forward to, like a lot more us time for me and my husband. But, um, you know, we, we both know that we're going to miss the heck out of these two. And the dynamic when they're together and the four of us are together is, is just fills me with joy. So I'm enjoying being surrounded by family right now and cherishing the moments we do have, knowing they will not last forever. Mm, what a beautiful way of putting it. And I love to hear how happy you are to all be together um, during the holiday season and, and just being able to see everybody and experiencing them. I am so excited to hear your perspective, uh, especially related to the fact that you've you're you're like there practically you're like right at the point in your book where you're like at age 18 they should be able to do these things and here you are exactly (laughs) or not (laughs) (laughs) well nobody's perfect (laughs) yeah you know i i want you to know right off the bat that um I have been on my own journey in writing this book. I, I used to be this dean at a university who couldn't believe what parents were doing uh, for their adult students, you know, doing too much handholding. And I thought, what's wrong with you people? And then I realized, oh my goodness, I'm on track to become one of those people. I'm doing a whole lot of overparenting in my own house. My own kids were eight and 10 at the time. And I've been on a journey since then, you know, for for close to 10 years now, I've been on a journey to try to give my children more and more room to grow, uh, to micromanage them less and less, to hover over them less, to delight in the fact that they have to try and fail and try again in order to really form their own self. And I'm still at, I'm a still, I'm still a work in progress. Mm. I'm not speaking to you and to, I'm not here in, in, in conversation with you, getting a chance to be with your listeners as an authority figure who's not made any of these mistakes herself. I am so in this with everybody. I'm in it deep. And so I have a tremendous amount of empathy for us parents. At the same time, I kind of saw the future being a college dean. I got to see, oh my gosh, this is the end result. This is what we don't want. We don't want 18 to 22 year olds who can't make a decision or solve a problem or cope with the minor setbacks. Life will throw your way. We, we have to Um, raise them so they have the skills and the mindset and the wherewithal to fend for themselves. Mm, I agree with you on all of that. And while I am, I feel like I'm in a master class every time I'm interviewing one of my guests, best-selling authors and, and top experts in the field, I feel like I have all of you in my ear 
talking to me while I am parenting because I, <laughs> I even today, knowing that I was going to be interviewing you, I'm in the kitchen with my kids and they're asking for something and I'm saying to them, what do you want to do? What do you need to do? Let's think through that. Like I could hear you telling me to step back. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And I, I agree with you. We're all works in progress and we all need help with that. Yeah. And everybody's in this together. Nobody is the authority and making no mistakes and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be so excited to hear from that person actually. Yeah. So I, I'm excited to jump in. And, yeah. and I would say before we get into the meat of the matter, for those people who haven't had the opportunity to read your books or to see you speak, see your TED Talk, which is so inspiring. I'd love to hear what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in speaking out about overparenting, something you say in your book has really been on the rise for years. Yeah, I think what gets me up in the morning is um, a real passion to use the, the most overused term in our lexicon. But, but for me, you know, my path, my purpose in life, my passion is uh, to help humans. It's not a unique passion. I've, a lot of people feel that passion. We want our life to somehow be useful uh, to others. And so whether it was law or being a university dean or now being a writer, I'm trying to do what I can to notice problems in the human experience and try to do what I can to help resolve those problems. And so as a dean at Stanford University, uh, position dean of freshman I held uh, from 2002 to 2012, I noticed that more and more of my students had parents who seemed to feel they ought to play a role in the management of life for their college student. And I thought, what is wrong here? You know, 18 used to mean independent, 20 certainly, 22 without a doubt. What's happening? Why are so many parents not trusting their son or daughter can register for class, can talk to a professor about a grade, can work out a roommate dispute, you know, can gather information, keep track of it and, and, uh, and uh, you know, apply for an opportunity or, uh, you know, move forward. Why, why are so many parents reluctant to let their student try? Why do they seem to think their student can't? And why don't the students mind that the parents are so involved? That was the most shocking thing. I'm a Gen Xer. My parents weren't, were very hands-off in my childhood as mm -hmm. typical. And so I thought when I was that age, if my parents had tried to argue over a grade with a professor, um, uh, you know, get involved in a roommate situation, I would have been absolutely mortified and, and surprised surprised we all been surprised and mortified and i couldn't figure out why my students were not only not mortified or surprised they were grateful they they were clearly very accustomed to having a parent or two drop everything swoop down and handle things and i grew alarmed because i thought wait a minute it looks as if they haven't gone through what we used to take for granted um, in a psychological sense you know the natural developmental stage where you separate from your parent. You're no longer a child being kept and cared for. You separate from them and develop your own sense of self, your own confidence and your skills and whatnot, uh, which we've always taken for granted would happen. And we're all pretty clear it has to happen because one day the parents will be gone and you need to know that offspring can, can survive. And so I began worrying about these offspring who weren't mine. They were the children of other people, but I thought, Hey, 
kid? When are you going to hunger to be in charge of yourself? And what's to become of you if you don't? What's to become of you if you delay that until 25 or 30? What's, what's going to happen to you? And how much harder will it be to seize control of your life that late? And what what's going to happen to all of us if at a societal level, not enough people in the next generation of young adults, if not enough of them know how to hashtag adult, which is a term they coined, um, what's going to happen? Mm. Um, who's going to lead us? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to have the wherewithal and the confidence and the know-how to really move an institution forward, a government, a family, an organization and so on. So I really worried at the level of the individual and at the level of society. And that's why I wrote How to Raise an Adult. Yes, actually, I, I'd love to dive into that book a little because you talk so much about in the beginning, you talk about the in the, the first couple of chapters about what's getting in our way and, and driving the helicopter parenting problem. You talk about from the need to keep our kids safe and sound to providing them with opportunity to being there for them in ways that really aren't healthy for anyone. So can you take uh, some time to explain what parents are specifically doing that cuts our children off at the knees and compromises their ability to become resilient, capable, resourceful people? Yeah. So overparenting falls into three categories and a person can be uh, actively engaging in one, two, or all three of these. The first is the overprotective parent who's decided that the world is very scary and unsafe and that the best that they can do is to prevent everything from happening and protect their kid from experiencing those things instead of preparing the child for what awaits them out in the world, beyond the home, beyond the school, and so on. So it's obviously a very lovingly based mindset. It's that kind of, I would never forgive myself if anything happened mindset. Mm -hmm. But what that parent is overlooking is your child will one day be a chronologically adult human who will lack the confidence who will be afraid of the world, who will be anxious out in the world because all you've ever done is taught them to fear things rather than imbuing in them the skills they need to have so that they can one day be as confident as you are out there. So the overprotective parent has to always know where a child is at all times, might be, might be observing them online with a webcam, might be GPS tracking them. Uh, and, that, and that continues all the way. You know, I see, I've seen that with 20-somethings who are still kind of tracked and Wow. Watched over, which I find creepy. Wow. And okay. I, think, I think psychologists will tell us one day that that's really harmful mm -hmm. to be basically watched 24 seven by however lovingly intended the parent mm -hmm. is. It's really worrisome. The second type is the fiercely directive parent. This is also known as the tiger type of parenting, mm -hmm. not limited to any particular ethnicity. I'll have you know, I've seen tiger types among Asian folk and black folk and Latinos and white folk and all kinds, you know, mm -hmm. I, everyone. Um, this is the parent who says, I know best what leads to success in the world. And you will do as I say, kid, you will be a doctor, you will be an economist, you will you know, you will go into STEM, whatever it is. It's one of those five or six tracks toward a career the parent has decided is the right one. Could be you will be a tennis star, you will be a golf star, you will be a concert pianist. But the point is the parent has decided what the kid will do with their life. 
and likely is conditioning their love on how successful the kid is at meeting the parents' expectations. And this just leads to a young person. That, you know, many of us were raised that way, and we wither and droop uh, living a life that we know is not the life we want to lead. We might be successful. We might be earning money. But the work doesn't resonate with our values or our sense of self. And so we've basically been marched down a life path of someone else's making, and we're, we're really not even living our own life. So that's the overdirective type. And the third type is the concierge, the parent who's just holding their kid's hand too long, uh, waking them up way too long, way too late in life, uh, keeping track of their deadlines, bringing forgotten things like homework, sporting equipment, lunch coat, bringing those things to school, arguing with teachers, arguing with coaches, kind of the handler. It's as if the child is a rock star and this person is, is the person that just walks around with the clipboard next to them to make sure every little transaction in life has been remembered and is handled. Mm. Um, so these are the three types. And we do this because, uh, first of all, everyone around us is doing it. So how can we not? It appears mm. to be neglectful not to be doing any of those things. And also because these things all work in the short term, if you're there at the playground three feet away from your child who's climbing the rock wall and they fall off, you're there to catch them before they fall on the fake wood chips, you know, you're there to prevent the skinned knee, which feels like a win. It's loving. It's helpful. The trouble is the kid's body kinesthetically never learns, oh, I shouldn't let go of the rock wall. Mm -hmm. Someone was there to catch them. They haven't learned that lesson. And of course, we should prevent our kid from falling off a cliff or from drowning in the water, but these days we treat everything as if it's that potentially grave. You know, if I'm not here at the park three feet away or 18 inches away, they might harm themselves irreparably, which is just really, you know, blowing things out of proportion. So there's a short-term win when we argue with a coach. We might get our kid more playing time. We might get them a better position on the team. When we do, overly help with homework, we might get them a better grade. Um, when we're the concierge, we bring them their forgotten lacrosse stick. They can still play in the game that day. The long-term cost to all of these behaviors is we're effectively doing too much of the thinking and the planning and the solving for our kid. We end up depriving them of developing self-efficacy, which is this core concept in the field of psychology, which is our own knowing of our own existence. This is where the conversation gets very existential and woo-woo. But basically, <laughs> it's like our psyche needs to know each one of us needs to know we exist and we develop that sense of our own existence by seeing that our own actions have outcomes. And if a parent overly helps an outcome in happening or does a lot of protecting toward that outcome happening or really directs that outcome from the get-go, the, the kid's psyche knows I didn't do it myself. I didn't get there myself. You know, this isn't what I didn't achieve this. Someone else got me there. Um, or handled me on the path to getting there. So this is what leads to higher rates of anxiety and depression. It's all connected. So these short-term wins come with this, this short-term gain, if you will, comes with long-term pain. And that's why I wrote this book. It's mm -hmm. harming kids and we have to stop. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And, and as you're talking, I'm thinking of the child up on the, the fake rock wall and yeah you know, you're saying, yeah, they're not learning to be able to hold on themselves or of course, bring their homework in themselves or bring their hockey stick in themselves. They're not creating the systems, the tools to do those things, but they're also not learning that, you know what, sometimes you forget your hockey stick and it's okay. And sometimes you fall in the fake wood chips right. and it's okay. You know, yes, you may get skinned. Yes. Your coach may yell at you. Yeah. Things may happen. And you're resilient and you're able to get up and deal with those things and make a change in your life so you don't do it again. 
Exactly. The learning only comes from having experienced the consequence. So when we're always rescuing at school, we're bringing the sporting equipment or the forgotten homework, the brain never experiences the ouch, you know, the discomfort of, oh no, I can't play lacrosse today. I didn't bring my equipment. My coach is unhappy with me. Instead, we've been rescued. Well, the parent doing the rescuing has deprived the child's brain of learning the lesson, which would have made them more likely to remember the, the lacrosse stick the next time. Mm. It's a vital point, and I thank you for making it. Now, in your book, you talk about this checklisted childhood. So can you tell us what it means to have a checklisted childhood and how it plays into the anxiety of the parents? Yeah. So first of all, I'm going to say that this problem I'm addressing sits squarely amid affluence. Mm. Parents who have time and money on their hands are the only parents who can afford to micromanage every minute of their kids' lives. Mm. So let's acknowledge this is a problem situated amid affluence with parents who have some influence. This is not a problem on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, typically. Mm. Um, Okay, so with that said, the checklist of childhood in those environments is this obsession with the right future for our child, which is usually a particular small set of colleges or universities that we need them to go to in order for us to feel good about ourselves. Mm. We say it's to get our kids to the right future, but let's be real. There's Mm. a tremendous amount of our own ego wrapped up in, I want to be able to say my son, my daughter is going to this college. I want that bumper sticker for the back of my car so everyone can be excited about me, right? Mm. It's our own ego Mm. that drives us to like, okay, I have to get my kid to that college. Therefore, I have to start them in the right pre-K or kindergarten or whatever the entry point is in your town, right? The right schools. And we want to be sure they're not just in the right schools, but they're taking all the right classes, meaning the right track or the right lane, the right level of challenge and difficulty. And not just that, we want to be sure they're getting A's in those classes. And we will go to some lengths. Some of us go to many lengths to make sure our kids are getting A's all the time. And it's so we, we help with, our, with their homework sometimes, meaning we outright do it. You know, teaching your kid the math is great. Cleaning up the kid's math when they're on their phone playing Fortnite is not great. Oh, uh, so parents are, are participating in this really unethical behavior to get their kid the right grade, or they've got their kid being tutored in every subject. That's normal in some communities now, which just means the childhood is filled with all of this, all of this work designed to make the child's outcomes better. Mm-hmm. But that means, so there's all that grade perfecting, and then there's all the standardized tests they have to take, and the effort that goes into prepping for those tests, and taking them, and retaking them, and retaking them, and that's not the half of it. There's all the activities we think they have to do, and I'm doing air quotes, have to do, and all the sports we think they have to do, and all the leadership they have to do, and all the community service, and then we hope they're going to get the right awards, and they're going to get the right accolades, and all of this expectation, and all of these actual activities are stuffed into the seven days a week that childhood affords. Mm. Childhood, in other words, hasn't gotten any longer. There are no more hours in the day than were the case when you and I were little. Mm-hmm. But nowadays it has become normal to fill a child's life from waking up to going to sleep with structured activities or academic enrichment or athletic enrichment because we've been duped into thinking that's what it takes to get them to the right future. The trouble is a childhood lived like this is a childhood that compromises sleep. It compromises free time. They don't have downtime. They don't have balance. Um, they're just these little automatons, these little robots going through life, executing our plans. And they get to the end of it as in the start of, you know, the end of high school, the start of college. 
if that's where they're headed. And they are brittle and breathless and fragile, as I say in my mm-hmm. TED Talk. And I know that because I've been the dean who gets to, you know, open her arms wide and say, welcome to our school. And too, too many of them were just burned out from this incredibly chock full of everything childhood. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to hear about all of that. And I I see it myself. uh, And I have to say that not doing that, it's it's actually kind of hard because you feel almost neglectful. Um, my, my children are not on the travel teams. You know, they're not, um, they're not doing all of those things. And, and then you hear about that, you know, the people who are having their kids do that. And you have to, it's hard not to think to yourself, is my child going to be left behind because he or she is not doing that, you know, that level of not going the, you know, at eight and nine years old, that are they behind all their other friends who have already done a several years of it? So the anxiety of parents, even when you're not doing that, you can feel it. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. You know, if a kid loves the sport, if the kid is him or herself or themselves motivated to, practice and compete if they're excited about being on the travel team more power to them yeah them in um doing what is necessary in order to to be at that level but if you are dragging your kid to those things or to that level of competition because you need it in order to feel like you're keeping up with the joneses because everyone on the streets kid is doing it don't do it turn back around and look at the kid and say you don't really want to be doing this, do you? And the kid will say, no, I don't. Then you'll just say, hey, how about if we focus on what you want rather mm-hmm. than what everyone else seems to be doing? And all of a sudden, your kid's outlook is going to improve. Your relationship with your kid is going to improve. Because basically what you're saying is, hey, kid, I'm choosing to see you for who you are rather than try to turn you into something I might have wished you would be or everyone in town seems to think is the right way to conduct a childhood. It takes guts to stand up to this overparenting crowd. But let me tell you, there are a lot of people in that crowd, in that herd, you know, who are desperately unhappy themselves. So many parents are just wishing that sanity could be re-injected back into this system. So many parents are searching for the guts themselves to say, we've had it. Mm. We want to go back to a little bit more downtime, a little bit more balance. Mm-hmm. Parents themselves are stressed out within that. You know, in other words, not only does the checklist in childhood take a toll on children, it's taking a toll on us parents. Just mm-hmm. think, think back to when we were little and we were in a sport or an activity like dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, our parents came to the biggest, biggest game or performance or competition. They didn't come to every single one. No, didn't come not to every a, class, first, certainly. They didn't come to a single practice. Mm-hmm. They dropped us off and picked us up. And um, nowadays, it does feel like neglect if we don't show up at every single practice. Right. And we've done that. We parents have created that ideology and that ethos. And it's time for those of us who know this is BS to just step up and say, you know what, I'm not, I can't come to practice today. I'm, I've got other things going on. We have to fill our lives once again with adult activities like reading books and going to the theater and participating in athletics in our own lives and hanging out with friends and, you know, having a nice 
conversation about whatever matters to us. In other words, we've filled our lives now as parents with just showing up on the sidelines of kids' activities and driving them everywhere. We, we, many of us have zero adult life of our own. And so we're anxious and we're, we're fragile and we're feeling empty because our lives lack a richness that our lives would have if we had a little bit more downtime, a little bit more balance. Uh, if we weren't zooming from activity to activity to perfect our kids' childhoods, and instead we're in our homes, making food with one another, having conversation with one another, being neighborly with our neighbors, seeing our friends in a social way, you know, just a little bit more of a relaxed life would be better for everybody. You make some really important points. I, I have a vision of my my parents. You know, each week they had card games at the house and and played mahjong and whatever else they were playing. And my dad downstairs with his buddies, and my mom, you know, on on the the main floor with hers. And I I feel like people are too tired to do those kinds of things right now. It's like it, the anxiety is high, but they're also tired. So there's an elephant in the room that we haven't discussed, which is really, I alluded to it when I said we want to get our kids into the right college, and that's the reason we're behaving this way. But the elephant in the room is that those so-called right colleges who do seem to expect that it is normal for a child, a teenager, to have have accomplished the most amazing, flawless, magnificent record Mm. uh, over the course of their junior high and high school years. Those colleges, and I worked at one of them and I attended that same college, um, you know, they seem to require a flawless, perfect childhood. And and so parents will say, aren't we just doing what we have to do to get our kids into the right college? Mm, And what I say back is, I think those colleges have really let things get out of hand. Look at what it took to get into one of them 10 years ago, then look at five years ago, then look at today and just forecast what it'll be like in 10 years, how absolutely excruciatingly stressful childhood would be, will be if those places don't put a lid on it. And my point is this, they are great places. They're just simply not the only great places. There are so many more fantastic schools, colleges, universities, If four-year is your plan for your kid, great. If you want to start with community college, that's also a great way to start, a much more affordable way to start. There are just many more paths than most parents realize. I'll tell you what, my my son is at Reed College, a smaller arts college in Portland, Oregon, that most people haven't heard of, frankly, because they don't participate in U.S. news because they know it's BS. And I got excited about Reed Years ago, when I was still at Stanford, probably 15 years ago, I was at a high-level meeting with senior leadership of the university and, and faculty members who are really quite highly regarded. And one of those faculty members said, we need to figure out how to make Stanford more like Reed. And I thought, what? What's this Reed place? Mm-hmm. Uh, all I knew about it was that Steve Jobs had gone there and dropped out. And But I leaned in and listened, and this faculty member went on to say, because at Reed, it's such a... Uh, nurturing environment. The faculty are there for the purpose of teaching and mentoring the undergraduates. There are no graduate students. There's not this obligation to do research and produce scholarship. The faculty are hired and promoted on the basis of how good a teacher are you. And that's what undergraduates need. And so I was really humbled on behalf of Stanford as a Stanford dean at the time. I was, I loved the fact that Stanford was asking itself, how can we be better? Mm -hmm. We're a world-class university, but we can't 
yet offer what a place like Reed and, and dozens of other small liberal arts colleges offer. And, and hearing someone I respected at Stanford praising the small liberal arts college all of a sudden put that whole category of schools on my radar. And I thought, well, when the time comes for my kid to apply, I need to keep these schools in mind because maybe that kind of environment is going to turn out to be best for my kid. Mm-hmm. And and so there are plenty of better lists than U.S. News. There's colleges that change lives, 40 small schools where the alumni uniformly say, hey, this place changed my life. Um, it, there's, there's, just, there's a list called the Alumni Factor online that you can buy that shows you uh, outcomes of alumni at 225 uh, colleges and universities. There are just better sources of information. If we parents could get our hands on them, there's a book you can read. Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be by Frank Bruni, which presents all kinds of evidence that successful, happy people mostly didn't go to big brand name colleges. Mm-hmm. And so if we could understand that and really believe it, then we could parent knowing that it's not about getting our kid into a school that denies 90 to 95% of all applicants, which is really sucky odds, mm-hmm. you know, but rather there are plenty of great schools out there. And then we can relax a little bit and let our kid experience the natural bumps and blips that happen in childhood that end up teaching them the lessons they need to know. So they'll emerge from our homes being stronger with their mental health intact and they'll thrive and succeed wherever they go. Beautifully said, and I, I have no doubt you're changing some minds and opening some some eyes right now. You talk about a different kind of checklist that 18-year-olds must be able to do to contrast that checklisted childhood. And as you're talking about these different colleges that support a different type of child, can you tell us more about what you do think 18-year-olds should be able to do without assistance that we're really striving for them to be able to do at that time. You know what? You Do you have my book in front of me? Because I don't. It's in the other room. So I don't have that list memorized. I have um, your book right here, but I do. I have the things. It's like you have to be able to take risks. You have to be able to uh, make your way around your campus or your new town. In other words, they, they have to be able to get transportation or get, get to a place. They have to be able to read maps. They have to be able to make their way out and about in the world. They have to be able to solve problems uh, when they're cohabiting with somebody, whether it's a roommate, doormate, um, you know, it's their landlord. They, they have to be able to interact with other humans and, and be respectful and, and, uh, but also advocate for their own needs, you know, negotiate, compromise, the, the sort of the, the blue tape of human interaction, sorry, the blue tape, where did I get that? The red tape of human interaction, um, the bureaucracies of life, they have to be able to navigate those, they have to be able to prepare food, they have to be able to fill out their own forms, I don't know, what else is on that list? It's all about charting their own path, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not even, but not charting in like a, I'm going to chart my own path, but like I'm going to be in charge of myself today. Right. Wake myself up, take care of my personal hygiene, dress myself, feed myself, and go out to a class or to a workplace uh, that is going to be where I earn money if it's work, where I learn if it's class. I'm going to be responsible for my bills. I'm going to be responsible for my interpersonal interactions. Um, I'm going to stand on my own two feet and make my way. This is what this is what it means to succeed as a parent, Dr. Robin. If our offspring can't fend for themselves in these most basic of ways, then we've failed. We have failed them. We have failed at parenting. 
It's not a parenting win if your 28-year-old is, you know, can't make it out there in the world and is living in your basement. I mean, maybe for a short term, yeah, if there's a economic downturn, if your kids had a, a bit of a setback, yes, home is always home. But our objective here is to have utter confidence that we've raised offspring who can fend for themselves without us. Why? Because one day we'll be dead and God help them if that if that's the first time they have to really stand on their own two feet and manage their way through life, through life on their own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think you said it very well. And um, there is a list in your book, but I think you've covered a lot of, of the key elements of just being able to take care of yourself, solve your problems, you know, make things happen in your life. And you really do underscore that it's important for them to be able to do this without calling their parent, without checking in, you know, on their own, knowing this is what to do, that they have some, as you say, self-efficacy and that they feel that they, they come up with the idea and then they execute the idea and they make things work. That's right. And they won't be perfect at it from the start. Too often we're uh, stepping in because the mindset goes, well, I, I can stack the dishwasher much more efficiently than my child, so I'm not going to have my child do it. Sure. How do you think you ever learned to stack the dishwasher effectively and efficiently? You stacked it one way, you realized things aren't getting very clean, or I wish I could fit more stuff, and you figured out a plan, and you have your own special way of loading the dishwasher, and your kid has to now learn to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there's this beautiful four-step method for, for teaching kids skills that I would love to mention if I can. Oh, please. At the end of the day, our kids are supposed to leave our homes with skills yes. so they can go out and lead their own life. And, and so there's this method I learned from my, my dear friend, Stacy Ashland, who had to do a lot of research on how you teach kids skills because one of her kids had some significant disabilities uh, at birth. And so she's raising her both children, one with disabilities, one has is developing typically. And she said, this is what I've learned, distilling all the research down. These are the four steps. Whatever the skill is, whether it's teaching them to use the stove, teaching them to cross the street, teaching them to put their own stuff in their backpack, it's a four-step method. Whatever the skill is, first you do it for them, then you do it with them, then you watch them do it, and finally they can do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And whether these steps occur over the course of a day or an afternoon of practicing using the stove or whether it's you know, a whole set of weeks over the summer where you're teaching them to cross the street safely, or whether it's a year, who knows, that depends on the skill, the, the child and their developmental circumstance. But the point is, we transition from doing it all for them, to them doing it all for themselves with these two important middle steps. Number two is, you do it with them. Number three is you watch them do it. And that's really where it flips mm -hmm. from your hands are all over it to you're stepping back and watching their hands being all over it, but you're still there for the just in case moment. And you stay at step three until you're confident they've got this and they can do it without you. This is, we should delight in teaching our mm -hmm. kids everything mm -hmm. instead of feeling like, oh, they'll never be perfect at it. Or, oh, I just want to help them in life. You don't help them in life by doing everything for them. It's as if you're still carrying them around like they're an infant. And that child needs to be set down on the ground. That child needs to learn how to stand, learn how to walk, and ultimately learn how to walk away from you and be okay when they're not with you. We should take joy and pleasure in that instead of feeling, oh, I'm no longer needed, or, oh, I could do it so much better than they could. No, get your own ego out of it and, 
and really invest in making sure your kid is learning the skills they must have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have this starred in my book in a, a nice big rectangle around it, um, exactly what you were talking about with your friend Stacy. And I love that. Uh, the four steps. I think it makes complete sense to me. Um, and I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about what life skills, you know, which specific, let's say, th give us three examples of life skills that you really truly feel that kids need to start to acquire, even, you know, during the elementary school and, and middle school age. What do you think, because you, you lay it out so nicely in your book, Age by Age, but what are some, yeah. what are some examples? Yeah, well, I think you're referring to the chores list, is that right? Yeah, so, you know, I love the chores list, and you clearly have a very, you know, good place in your heart for chores. So, well, let's tell you, let me tell you why, and then I'll tell you some things you want your elementary schooler to know how to do. Um, the longest longitudinal study of humans ever conducted, discovered, or revealed that those humans who were professionally successful in life turn out to have done chores as a child or had a part-time job in high school. And that's because chores build a work ethic. Mm -hmm. As a child, you have a set of responsibilities and you are accountable for them. If you don't do them, there'll be consequences and you have to roll up your sleeves and pitch in and be useful and contribute your effort, your sweat equity to the betterment of the whole. That's what will get them ahead in the workplace. It will serve them well in a group, on a team, uh, in a classroom. It's no surprise, but many of us are completely overlooking this because the checklist of childhood doesn't tend to include chores because the childhood is so filled mm. with things we think are actually enriching them, depriving them of the actual things, chores that will grow a work ethic, which will serve them well once they leave our homes. Um, so it's astonishing what small children can do. Um, at, at the chores level, uh, tiny little ones, two and three-year-olds can dust uh, things that are at their, at their height and lower. They can sort clothing into um, the light things and the dark things. And they're delighted to help when they're that young. Mm -hmm. Little tiny children can, you, can take plastic uh, silverware and plates to the table and put it up on the table. And they can bring their own things in from the table. Um, uh, you know, at the at the end of the meal, um, elementary school kids can be pouring their own milk and cereal and, and you know, really participating in meal preparation. We just absolve them of all of this, but mm -hmm. in fact, they can be learning. Um, an elementary kid, if they leave their backpack behind, if it's a third grader, you can say to them, when they say, oh, I left my backpack at school, can you go get it for me? You're well within your rights to say, I'm sorry, honey, I can't, I'm doing other things. Mm -hmm. and And then say, how do you think you're going to handle it? And your kid will say, I don't know. What are you talking about? <laughs> Go get it for me. And you'll say, I can't. And sometimes you have to lie and say, I can't, because you're trying to teach the lesson that I'm not here to rescue you all the time. Obviously, if it's a make or break thing, it's like that huge assignment is due tomorrow and you don't want your kid to suffer the consequences, fine. But don't get into the regular act of rescuing them. Instead, say, how do you think you're going to handle it? And the kid will say, I don't know. And you'll say, well, what can you do? to think this through and, and, and encourage them to think it through. And you're, you know, you might say, is there someone you can call to find out what the homework is? And maybe the kid can call a friend. Maybe the best thing a kid can do is, is uh, email the, the teacher to say, I left my work at home or uh, just simply go and uh, left my work at school. Maybe they go in the next day with a, with an apology. But the point is you're teaching them, Hey, this is your life. It's your backpack. It's your class. And ultimately you're responsible. And it sounds cruel, but it's not. It's this loving lesson, which is 
which learned early will give them so many more skills and tools than everybody else their age who are used to being micromanaged and handled and, and looked after. Um, this is the young person who's raised that way, who, who will have their act together by the time they get to high school, let alone college, and they're not expecting to be rescued and they know how to be responsible for their stuff. And they delight in being responsible for their stuff. That's the best, that's the best piece of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that uh, whole part. And you think it's incredibly important that kids are pitching in that they do family contributions, which we refer to them in our house. And and we're all part of the same team. We all pitch in, we all live here and, and feeling like part of that team. And that it doesn't have to feel like a punishment. It's actually, you know, this is how a team operates. And I think, I think they feel included. They feel important when they are uh, given responsibilities and no do they always love them no uh, but that they that they know that they're significant their contribution is valued yeah. and that later on in life i'm sure that they will appreciate having the opportunity to learn them early laundry and you know how to clean a dish and i taught my daughter how to make an egg pretty early on uh, because you never know, you know, so got to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, I've, in my book, I profile a college student. Um, it's funny. I can't remember what name I gave her in the book, so I won't say it here, but I profile somebody who went to college, um, at Duke, I think. And she had been raised amid affluence, but her parents had serious expectations around contributing to the household with your, you know, family contributions, chores, whatever you want to call them. So by the time she got to college, she was astounded at how many of her peers had never seemed to have lifted a finger before. And they didn't really know how to do much for themselves, uh, whether it was solve a routine problem, something is broken, something doesn't work, uh, gathering information. I don't know how to do this. Where do I go for that? They just didn't seem to have any confidence in their or impetus to kind of solve things, figure things out for themselves. And she was just stunned at how it's sort of incapable they were. And she then felt very delighted that she had these skills. It was like, you know, could almost see her kind of dusting off her hands. Like I've got this, you know, you all figured this out, but I know what I'm doing. And she gets to the workplace and she's getting praised in the workplace because she's not sitting around expecting directions and not sitting around expecting applause. You know, she actually dives in, does the work, works hard, gets ahead, keeps getting promoted while her friend is there whining, like, why didn't I get the promotion? Well, maybe it's because you don't show up for work on time. Maybe it's because you always take long lunches. Maybe it's because you always leave early. Maybe it's because you always seem to need a day off. You know, like, no, show up, do the work, and you'll get your rewards. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, when I was interviewing Jessica Leahy, and she talked about this idea of, you know, not rescuing your child. And she spoke specifically about her own son who walked out the door without his assignment. And, you know, she allowed it to happen, you know, didn't, didn't run it in. And he developed this checklist that he used, you know, to this day of making sure that he had everything before he left, uh, you know, walked out the door, which absolutely inspired me when my daughter did the same thing and left and walked out the door without her assignment. Um, and I, I actually had emailed Jess and 
once said, uh, who wrote um, about failure, mm-hmm. and I, I had said, uh, I, I'm just keeping your story in my head and, and looking at the homework on the table and just <laughs> staying in my seat and not moving because um, it's, it's hard to allow, you know, these failures to happen. It's sometimes hard to, you know, see your child you know, doing things the wrong way or not enjoying doing a task and not, and, and, and keeping yourself from, you know, saying, all right, I'll just do it. I'll just do it for you and get it done faster and better and without you complaining. So, you know, there's a lot there. Um, but I, I really feel like I want to put high beams on the study that you're mentioning and also the results that you're talking about, because even with the complaining or the failure or the frustration or the embarrassment, that's where that lesson comes in and that's where the growth comes in so that the person who does go to college and has those skills can feel like, I can do this. I mean, there's there's the gift, you know, from all the frustration and irritation. There's the gift that your child feels like they can do it on their own and that they're resilient. Yeah. Absolutely. And ultimately, it's not about how perfectly they do it. It's that they learn to do it and they get better and better over time. Uh, Somebody doesn't build competency at a task or an academic subject in a day or in one attempt. You build competency by trying and trying and trying over time, by getting better and better at it. And ultimately, you build mastery. We end up trying to get our kids to this place of mastery much sooner than they could get there themselves. We think we've gotten them to the right place or to the right future. And then what happens is we've gotten them there, but they really haven't built the muscle memory to know how to do it themselves. They don't, uh, they don't have actual confidence that they can do it without us. So they're standing at this future we've, we've delivered to them and they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I also loved what you were saying about just going through the conversation with the child. Like I forgot my, I forgot my backpack and you're asking them, what are you going to do? You're prompting them to be thinking on their own. I like that you did that in your book because we talk so much about conversations here, not sort of cutting it off and being like, well, then you're going to have to go do this or you know, giving them the next line, not even just not rescuing them, but actually coming in with your own conversation and saying, well, this is what you should do. And I know that you also talked about that even with like, when, you know, with grades that you talk about that in your book, if somebody, if, if you ask, how was school today? And your child says, fine. And you're on, how's your math test? You know, what, what happened here? And the child replies, I got an A. You know, that's like that moment where you have to do something different. What do you suggest in that moment where the conversation should go? And we know probably where it could go, but where should it go? Yeah. Too many of us are just obsessed at the end of the day with knowing uh, how did you do on the math test? How did you do on the science test? Have you started your homework? When are you going to do your homework? Have you done your homework? You know, all of that checking in on academic outcomes and then nudging and nagging toward the next thing that has to be done. For many of us, that's the sum total of our conversation with our kids, particularly once they get to high school. We're so worried about getting them to the right future. All we can seem to talk with them about are their academic outcomes. And the trouble is, the kid feels that we don't love them unconditionally. The kid feels they're loved if they're getting the grade that makes our eyes dance with delight. You know, like, oh, great, right? But if they get the wrong grade, then we're disappointed. 
And if that's all we're ever talking about, then it, they feel that our, our love of them is conditioned upon their academic achievement and that we love them less if they're not doing as well. So we really have to, and of course, some parents and schools have this parent portal where you can check grades constantly throughout the day and the week, which I think is ruining the relationship between parents and kids and kids and teachers and teachers and parents. It's just letting a piece of technology do what humans ought to be doing themselves, which is having conversations about academic progress and about learning. So in our homes, I actually call this the one-week experiment or the one-week cleanse. Uh, If you're the sort of parent who always has to know at the end of every day about the homework and about, you know, today's achievements, I say, have this conversation with your kid. Hey, kid, I know I'm always asking about your performance and about your homework, and that may make you feel like I think you don't care. Like, I always have to nag or be on top of you about these things may make you feel like I think you don't care about these things, but I know you do care. So for one week, and I'm sorry, you know, and so for one week, I'm going to practice not asking at all. Hmm. Um, And, um, and what happens is uh, the kids and parents now they report there's more laughter in the home, not because the kid is flunking out and everyone's exasperated, but Hmm. you're talking about other things. You know, you've promised for a week not to nag or ask, that gives the room kids to sh- that gives kids the room to show up in their own lives, and share with you things they might otherwise have kept to themselves because they're they just haven't enjoyed talking with you because all you've ever done is nag or pry, mm-hmm. and um, kids end up doing their their work more uh, autonomously. You're giving them that distance that they need, that autonomy that they need, as Jessica Leahy writes about, so that they can actually care about their own work and focus on their work. You're basically saying, hey, this is yours. And I'm going to let you have it. And I'm going to stop being all up in your face about it. And so the kids are happier. The kids are more likely to do their own work. Um, The kids are less anxious. Parents are less anxious. And uh, the parent-child relationship is improved when we can – when we can actually so take an interest in them instead of this academic transactional stuff. So the better questions are, hey, how was your day? That's what we want to be asked, right? When we get home from work or we get home after a long day, we want someone to give a darn about us and say, hey, how, how was your day? How are you doing? And we want that person to take an interest in whatever we say, not tell us we shouldn't feel that way or that didn't, you know, that doesn't matter or what have you. We, we actually want to be listened to and so do our kids. So your kid might say, my day was fine. And then you have to ask the next question, which is, well, tell me one thing that was fine or tell me something that was better than fine. And then, you know, when I say that to my daughter and she's in high school, sometimes she just says, oh, lunch was really great. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, like, yes, recess. I'm not, I'm not interested in lunch, honey, right? You don't say that. Instead, you're, you light your face up and you say, hey, tell me about lunch. What was great about lunch? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, your teenager is telling you something goofy that happened at lunch and she's laughing and you're laughing and you make her a snack and, you know, there's a whole lot of love being exchanged. And then you leave the room and you go do something else and you have confidence your kid is going to start her homework or his homework or their homework when they feel like it and they'll get it done or they won't and they'll deal with the consequences that come. It's their life. Mm. And boy, the joy, the relief that comes when you can just stop fearing that it's on yours to micromanage. It's on you to micromanage. Mm. Mm. Very important information. And I I think that it's a time for us to all to step back and really let that soak in. So at this point, give us your top tip. What is the top tip that you want us to come away with so that we can raise an adult who has resilience and is capable? 
Well, I actually just put my tips on my website. I call it 4321GO. So people should go to julielifcotthames.com, no hyphen, julielifcotthames.com for my 4321GO tips. But one of those tips is the three things you should stop doing right now to make a difference in your child's life. Number one, stop saying we when you mean your child. We're on the soccer team. No, you're not. You're not on the soccer team, okay? You say my child, my son, my daughter, they, whatever the situation is, you acknowledge it's theirs, not yours. Number two, stop arguing with all the authority figures in their life. Teachers, principals, heads of school, coaches, umpires, referees are all so tired because they're dealing with all of our insistent emails and just have to talk to you, just need to check in, right? Stop it. And instead, teach your kid how to advocate for themselves respectfully. And number three, stop doing their homework. If you're the sort of parent who cleans up the math, who rewrites the paragraph or the essay, or outright does a science project, it's unethical. The teacher has no idea what your kid actually knows. And you're telling your kid, hey, kid, you can't be successful. I'm going to have to step in and do your homework for you. Oh, wow. Yes. And you just gave the resource of the week, which is your website. So uh, anybody can get, I'm sure, the information that you just talked about, but also information about you, your book, and where you're going to be speaking and all that good stuff as well. Yep. That's where you can find my social media links. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Go to the website, juliethgodhames.com. And that's really kind of the entry point into anything you might be interested in by way of connecting with me or my work. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much, Julie, for your insight and your strategies. I I think your tips are right on and your insights are so important to illuminate where we're sort of going down the wrong path and how we can now rescue ourselves. And in doing so, we can let our children go and learn and do and become on their own and that's going to help everybody. So thank you so much for giving us this information and being on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Robin. It's been a pleasure and I appreciate all the listeners for listening. Hope everybody has a great rest of their day and let's, let's step up and do the right things. Let's step up for our kids by stepping back and that's how we'll raise them to be successful, thriving adults. I agree with you. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. Let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And I'm going to be going back and forth with Julie. I'm going to be making memes as I always do uh, so that we can highlight some of her incredible Uh, tips and her beautiful phrasing of things, her quotes, so many things she said today. I felt like, aha, that's it. Let's put that on a meme and let's throw it out there so that you guys can share it. I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review how to talk to kids about anything so that other people can learn about Julie and all of her amazing uh, ways of explaining this very important concept on how to raise an adult and use these ideas in their own homes. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast, as well as all others, are up there as well. I look forward to 
to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. I know you're probably hearing these things that Julie has said today and you're thinking, my goodness, I've been doing this all along. Don't do that to yourself. There's always a time to start and today is that day. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.